the Money Minutes. Today, one of Australia's leading demographic thinkers, Bernard Salt, on infrastructure, population and future attitudes after the coronavirus. Thanks for your company here on The Money Minutes. At the end of 2019, so what are we talking, a little over nine months ago, it would have been really hard to imagine the change that every person and every company on the planet has had to deal with in the space of less than 12 months. From the way we now are able to interact with friends and family, personal liberties previously taken for granted, now deprived. Working or schooling from home is now a norm and not a special thing. The wearing of masks in shops and offices, once banned, now mandatory. Travel, not just overseas, but even within our own borders. The coronavirus is reshaping every aspect of our lives. Now, there's good news in all this. It's that human beings, again, are proving resilient and highly adaptable to these new conditions. In order to survive, most people have modified their behaviour to gain as comfortable existence as they possibly can. And that can be seen by the boom in domestic travel inside states where borders are closed. It can be seen by the jobs boom that's followed the massive route as the coronavirus hit. Even the way in which people go out and embrace their liberties once they're freed up. And it'll happen in Victoria. The Prime Minister and Government are clearly considering these points as they frame the 2020 budget due to be handed down in early October. And you picked up just a little but not all of the thinking in the Prime Minister's interview with the ABC's David Spears on The Insiders over the weekend. We're moving forward to the budget in just under two weeks' time and there are a range of measures that are in the budget I, I can assure you, which are going to be pro-boosting... Uh, I'm, I'm sure that's the case, but I'm just asking you, and surely you must have so, but had the my, experts my look point, at this. David, is that they take into account... Sorry, sorry, I'll let you finish. Well, this is a big call. We're in the middle of a recession. You're reducing these payments. What does Treasury say the impact will be on the economy? Well, what Treasury says is that we need to boost aggregate demand in our economy and that the full suite of measures that you have as a government need to do that job, and that's what the budget will do. And so you don't have to hold on to every measure forever. Uh, there are other measures that come in um, and pick up mm. from where others left off. Uh, and uh, we're transitioning JobKeeper. It's important to do that. We always said it was not something that could be around forever. JobKeeper also finds its level where the need is greatest. 60% of the JobKeeper payments that will be made at, at the end of this month will be in Victoria. I mean, of all, Victoria will count for more JobKeeper payments than all the other states Put together well, unemployment's combined. still rising so in Victoria. Do you think well, unemployment course. will keep That's rising? Right. So it's a program that finds its need. It, mm. It's a program that finds its level of need, David. And job seekers the same. But there are other programs, and the Treasurer will go into greater detail about that. Obviously, in the budget, um, which are dealing with the, the here and now, but rebuilding our our economy and then building it for the future. Do you think so? We can go into a decade of prosperity. Do you think unemployment nationally will keep rising from this point? Now, Spears at that point diverted the conversation towards employment. But for me, it would have been more interesting to stay on the topic and talk about the decade of prosperity that the Prime Minister is suggesting. Because though I might agree that if successive governments make exceptional economic choices, then it could be a decade of prosperity. But the bigger question is whether this government politically is prepared for the short-term pain required to reset the economy 
for asset values to fall to affordable levels, for unemployment to rise as companies reset themselves, and for the government itself to address hard reforms to both tax and industrial relations. Because up until now, we've had the classic Keynesian response to the economic shock caused by the pandemic. Government stepped in with instant cash to support those most willing to spend, in other words, Australian families. The next step, as the PM seemed to be about to tell Spears, is for massive infrastructure spending to create assets for the future, jobs as well, as a longer-term way to create that demand that, say, JobKeeper and JobSeeker have given the instant fix towards. But the changes to Australia society caused by the coronavirus also need to be assessed as the government embarks on this spending. It could be hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars worth. In other words, the way in which we will work in the future. Our population growth rates, which have flattened as a result of a lack of immigration coming in from overseas. The industries that are likely to emerge in the future and our use of technology that will change the way we move about in the future, the way in which we work, indeed the very way in which we live. Because this is all about the future. And he said that you are, you are the future. He said that you are... The future The future looks good So I want to bring into this conversation a very old friend of mine, somebody who I've known for the best part of 25, 30 years, and that is Bernard Salt. Now, Bernard Salt is one of Australia's leading social commentators and business analysts as well. He not only writes for the Australian newspaper, but broadly has also been Australia's best demographic thinker over the past generation. So I bring him in here now. Bernard, many thanks for your time. Hi, Ross. Good to see you again, or speak with you again. Well, it's always good. I mean, you and I, we, we go way back, and I know that you and I, I think, <laughs> I think I always say this because I always claim, this is my claim, you've done so much television radio, I, I think I did your first television interview going back about 25 or 30 years ago as, as we you, go back in time. You do. We, we did Healthy, Wealthy and Wise. We did it in the streets of South Melbourne, and uh, I was very excited to be on that program, and you taught me about... Uh, right positioning to uh, to get the right effect in front of a camera. You see, was, uh, oh, you see, you see, old dogs, we are really, that's that's the thing. I, I want to, look, I want to bring you into this conversation about the government and its infrastructure budget. They've said this is where their priority lies. Um, and, and to a certain extent, as I've explained, you know, classic Keynesian economic theory says you've got to stimulate demand when the private sector drops out. Now, they've already done that by spending the best part of uh, more than $300 billion providing JobKeeper and job job seeker, these types of programs, the next phase in their mind is to start to build infrastructure that gives not only lasting jobs, but also potentially will bring lasting sort of, if you like, legacies in terms of what is built for the future population. So, you know, from that point of view, you'd have to think that the thinking is at least on classic economic track right now. Well, you would have to think so. And, um, Uh, it's important that we do actually deliver projects out of this. You want to look back in, say, 2040, look back and say that project in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, or whatever it was, was one of those projects that really did make a difference in the 2020s. And it's not just beautification of the city. 
uh, I, I certainly uh, do know that there were a number of projects back in the Great Depression that certainly gave people work, but it didn't really provide uh, a piece of infrastructure that that made Australia more productive, more efficient. And that's the legacy. That's the sort of projects that we want to come out of this big investment base uh, coming on the other side of the uh, of the coronavirus. Okay, so the coronavirus itself brings some challenges. Number one is the population growth that was anticipated in Australia. Uh, that could have seen Australia's population grow uh, by double almost over the next you know, 30 to 40 years, something of that nature. And so if, say, for example, a coronavirus is not delivering the same sort of growth in population, there then become questions about whether Australia really needs that infrastructure support to support a growing population. Because this is the argument about why we need better infrastructure and new infrastructure right across the country. Well, well, that is true, and you only have to look at um, the two best examples of this, uh, Melbourne and Sydney. Here are two cities that are very roughly around about 5 million people today. By 2050, the thinking was that they would be 8 million. Now, let's just say that, uh, in, that uh, immigration is affected for, um, for you know, the rest of the decade. Instead of Melbourne and Sydney going from 5 to 8 million people by the middle of the century, it might be 5 to 7 million people or 5 to 6 million people. Australia is still a young and growing country. We have a birth rate that um, uh, that is relatively high compared to, uh, to compared to other developed nations. There will be some immigration, maybe just not at the levels that we have experienced, certainly over the last decade or so. So um, it could moderate, significantly moderate our rate of growth, but uh, this will still require uh, our cities to be far more efficient going forward. We have big Western car-based cities. And anything that will make fluidity and transport across the metropolitan area would certainly help making our cities more productive into the future. Well, it's interesting to note that before we went into the coronavirus, as the government had already committed that $100 billion, I think it ended up being close to $120 billion over the next 10 years. Now, that was really aimed at taking congestion away from our capital cities and trying to move people around. So it was concentrated largely on transport. Now, the government's done a few things since then. It's actually kept our uh, permanent migration rate at 160,000 over the next four years. But then they've put in place um, sort of, if you like, their dreams, the dream to build fast rail connections between the big capital cities and regional centres, one of those being trying to get a, a fast rail connection from Melbourne to Geelong. You can imagine another one going from Sydney to Newcastle, Sydney to Wollongong, for example. Even it could be that you get one between uh, Brisbane and maybe Ipswich, some of its outer suburbs. So these are the types of things that are going to move people around but is this really the thing that's going to not only provide the economic growth, the jobs, but also does that set Australia up for what we look like in 30 or 40 years' time? You know, Ross, I've never really been a big fan of the um, fast train uh, logic. I know it's very popular with the, the utopia uh, version of, um, of, of television, that television series. Um, and it, because the reason is that I've always thought that what you're actually saying is that all the best jobs, all the cool jobs, all the high-paying knowledge worker type jobs are tied up in the CBD of our major cities. And what we need to do is to get people from dormitory suburbs into those locations. A better way to do this, I think, is to actually take those high-paying jobs from the CBD of Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane and seed them 
in regional centres, not necessarily regional centres in the country, but in different parts of the metropolitan area, I think that we need to think or rethink the way our cities operate. I've always thought that our capital cities look a bit like a fried egg. You have the rich, creamy yolk in the centre where you have all of the uh, the knowledge workers uh, and then you have this flat white going out in every direction and trying to get workers from the suburbs to the city centre you're always chasing your tail with the delivery of uh, infrastructure. A better way to do it is to take jobs from the city centre and to seed them around the metropolitan area. I think that is a better mousetrap. I think that reduces carbon emissions. I think that it's a better way of organising our city. Planners have been banging on about this for 20 years. They call it the 20-minute city. They nicked the idea from the Paris Strategic Plan 20 years ago. I think Australia could develop a 30-minute city logic, live, work, play, recreate, go to university, go to hospital, all within your local area, within the Ipswich area, within the Parramatta area, within the Dandenong area. That, to me, is a better model for structuring a Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane going from four, five, six and seven million people over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Okay, so now that we are living through this COVID era, era on Zoom meetings and, you know, sort of Teams meetings, whatever they might be, does this perhaps even give us the incentive to actually see that vision? Because right now what we understand is that businesses themselves are going to reanalyse their rents, uh, the, the way in which they employ people, uh, whether they actually need to have all of their workers in the office at the same time, uh, this might very well spark a revolution in the way in which we work, as well as the transport systems for the future. This is the circuit breaker that I think that the coronavirus has delivered. It's had delivered a lot of pain, but in actual fact, it has. it's a bit like this bizarre big social experiment where we have shown workers and workplaces that many workers, not all workers, but many workers, can be just as productive at home. Prior to the coronavirus, barely 5% of the workforce worked from home, and that includes farmers who have to work from home. After the coronavirus, I don't think that, uh, that the number uh, who are working from home will go back to the old figure of 5%. I think it'll be more like 10% or even 15%. At 10%, that means there's another 600,000 workers working from home. They come out of the CBD and other workplace destinations. At 15%, it's 1.2 million workers are working from home. That reduces congestion. And it's, it's like putting a defibrillator on the suburbs of Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane. It injects life into those areas and better utilises the existing infrastructure. The implications there are that you don't need to spend as much money on infrastructure getting in trams, trains and automobiles, getting people into the city centre. You can spend that money on social welfare or anything you like. It's, it's simply a better business model. And the, the change in thinking has been brought about by the coronavirus where 10 or even 15% of the workforce now decide that it's a better model for them to actually work from home. In your recent column in The Australian, you made the observation that those who lived through the Great Depression were frugal for the rest of their lives, and the generation that survived World War II became builders and entrepreneurs and simply got on with their lives after years of adversity. 
Now, these economic shocks, big economic shocks like this, have a lasting consequence for those who go through it. Now, this generation, particularly younger people going through this coronavirus right now who might be without work or might be struggling to find the work that they are seeking right now, they could very well be people whose whole manner is shaped by what is taking place during these few years of this coronavirus recession. Very much so. In fact, I think that the quality that uh, will come out the other side, the, the employee quality that you will need in order to survive and thrive in the 2020s is one of adaptability. I don't care what business you're in. I don't care what skill set you have. I don't care what university or other training program that you went through. You are going to have to learn how to adapt your skills uh, to whatever work is evolving in the, uh, in the 2020s. I think another um, factor we'll see in the 2020s is a shift towards automation, hyper-automation. I think manufacturing will come back to uh, Australia. People will be focused on issues like supply chain security, and that will drive manufacturing-type jobs, but more in more automated-type jobs. The best thing you can do to, to future-proof your career, your lifestyle, your, your future income, is to be unfazed by change. If you are upset and and phased by change, then you are going to really struggle to adapt to the way in which the workforce in the future uh, is evolving. You need to actually almost relearn new skills, uh, establish new relationships with new people, work in different environments, work from home, work from an office, work from a cafe uh, in, in order to adapt to the way of the future. That to me is going to be the great learning for workers and for workplaces coming out of the coronavirus. And so the government, as it goes into this budget, and he's really trying to concentrate on infrastructure, what you're saying is, yes, you do need to think about your cities, the way in which they will look in the future. You need to look at your regional areas to see the way in which they will observe. You need to look at what businesses might be there in the future. It makes it very difficult trying to pick winners as government. And given the fact that they're the biggest game in town right now, they've effectively got to try and pick some winners as they spend their tens or hundreds of billions of dollars to try and make certain that they are in step with the way in which Australia and Australians look in the future. Very, very much so. Although I do think there are a couple of winners out there that uh, that are likely good bets, if you like. Uh, one is the um, the agribusiness, the agricultural sector, and I'm not sure that that is directly connected to the coming of the coronavirus. I think that's more a reflection of the drought-breaking rains that we had in January and February. The regions were likely touched by the uh, coronavirus. Um, not all, but many parts of the regions have been soaked in drought-breaking rains. There's an air of optimism. There's a greening. There's a confidence about regional Australia at the moment, and also a focus on downstream processing. So you grow the wheat or you, you develop the product and you add value to it locally. And also, you've got this, uh, this flee the city movement at the moment. People are looking for ways to get... Seeing the city as a as a dangerous place, as a congested place. So I'm, I'm actually predicting that we'll see a lot of uh, uh, regional revival in the, uh, in the 2020s. The regions have done it tough for 20 years or so. It's now time for those regions to, uh, uh, their time to be in the sun. 
Well, Bernard, as always, it's great to have a chat to you because we've done it so many times over the years and we've done done so many interesting uh, sort of, if you like, observations of the way in which Australian life changes. Can I just say, anybody who wants to try and find Bernard, go to his website, bernard-salt.com.au. Otherwise, you can, of course, pick up his column in the Australian newspaper. And uh, Bernard, I look forward to doing it again very shortly. Thanks very much, Ross. So that's it for the Money Minutes for today. Thanks so much for your company. We'll keep you updated as we come closer to the budget, which is, of course, Tuesday, October the 6th this year. And that's when we'll really find out what the government's commitment is to that infrastructure of the future, to the jobs potentially of the future. Because as I say, infrastructure is not always about roads and rails. Sometimes it's about the very fabric that binds our community for the changing times into the future. In the meantime, I'm Ross Greenwood, and these are the Money Minutes. The future looks good.